daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. A landmark science and technology agreement between the U.S. and China has narrowly escaped termination. Rather than renewing it for another five-year period, the Biden administration made a last-minute decision to extend it for six months, saying this will allow Washington to undertake negotiations to amend and strengthen the terms. Signed in 1979 by U.S. President Jimmy Carter and Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping, the U.S.-China Science and Technology Cooperation Agreement was the first bilateral accord after the two countries normalized relations. For too long, our two peoples were cut off from one another. Now we share the prospect of a fresh flow of commerce, ideas, and people which will benefit both our countries. Sino-U.S. relations have reached a new beginning, and the world situation is at a new turning point. China and the United States are great countries, and the Chinese and American peoples, two great peoples. Friendly cooperation between our two peoples is bound to exert a positive and far-reaching influence on the way the world situation evolves. Fast forward 44 years, the landscape has transformed considerably. China has emerged as a leading force in scientific research, and U.S. lawmakers argue the scientific and technological collaboration could advance China's military capacity. They recommended to let the agreement expire without renewal. Yet at its core, science thrives on collaboration. Researchers come together driven by shared interests, their efforts directed toward advancing humanity. In a world increasingly molded by technological progress, can we truly afford to let political tensions overshadow scientific cooperation, especially between two scientific powerhouses like the U.S. and China? Joining our discussion today, Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Caroline Wagner, professor at The Ohio State University. Tian Xia, professor of medicine at University of California, Los Angeles. And Mark Cohen, Asia IP project director at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Welcome to you all. And, and Dr. Zhao, to start with you, uh, can you tell us about the historical significance of this agreement and how it has shaped bilateral scientific exchanges over the past 44 years? Well, thank you for having me. And first of all, let's make it very clear that this agreement was signed 44 years ago in 1979, when China and the United States first uh, normalized its diplomatic relations. And this was an umbrella agreement, uh, meaning that uh, this agreement does not involve direct funding or specific sector of scientific cooperation. Uh, but it enabled two sides to cooperate on scientific and technological issues. Uh, and over the years, uh, China and the United States has been uh, cooperating, and uh, particularly in the 21st century, the two countries with the rise of China in scientific technology uh, capability, uh, that two sides are more equal as partners. And most recently, their publication uh, for each other has been 
top of the world. And therefore, this agreement is not only mutually beneficial for both countries, but actually beneficial to the world because it's contributing to basic science and improving the scientific environment throughout the world. Yes, indeed. And, and Dr. Zhao, are political agreements like this um, a necessary prerequisite for for international scientific collaboration? And can scientists um, still work together without this agreement? Well, um, actually, um, scientists can work with each other individually and through the bilateral institutional cooperation. However, that needs to go like individual agency or individual uh, like uh, programs. However, without this overall umbrella backing and enabling them, uh, there will be more difficulties and more problems involved. Uh, and this uh, particular agreement is renewed every five years. And uh, throughout the years, in the, in the past four decades, the renewal has not met any problem, even though there, there were uh, some uh, problems before, but it's all been uh, ironed out by two sides. So that means that this particular agreement is actually very valuable for both sides. And even with political difficulties previously, both sides can still overcome that and continue to carry out the scientific uh, and technology cooperation. Yeah, and Professor Xia, um, it's been 44 years since the agreement was signed. Uh, but what's the state of science cooperation between the U.S. and China right now in 2023? And can you share some of your personal experience? Yeah, uh, the plenty of collaborations between the U.S. and the China, you know, in the scientific field. Uh, in my field, it's medicine. Uh, I'm studying the nanoscience. So I collaborated with many of my Chinese colleagues on this, and we published uh, a lot of papers on this field. So. Uh, in my personal experience, we have a lot of uh, this exchange of ideas uh, freely, and we uh, support each other in the project. So uh, that is very fruitful, you know, in contributing uh, the advance of sciences. Uh, that's the, you know, uh, what my personal experience is. We know that when the agreement was signed in 1979, science was viewed as a low conflict area. But how has this perception shifted over time and what factors have contributed to this change? Oh, yeah. Science, it's, you know, uh, it's not limited to one country or, you know, uh, so it's it's a universal, you know, uh, pursuit of the understanding of the nature. So it's by nature, it's uh, you know not uh, competition or you know a conflict uh, inducing factor, but uh, you know uh, since science can be also have this dual use in the national defense. So it may be conceived, you know, in recent years by uh, a factor that can contribute to the, you know, fierce competition in the defense field. So, however, uh, in my view, uh, 
most of the sciences are basic sciences. It's a natural pursuit of the knowledge, you know, to understand the nature. So uh, although there are some aspects can be, you know, leading to the military or defense uh, programs, but uh, most of this knowledge are natural occurring, you know, it's our curious humans curiosity to try to understand the nature. So uh, largely the perception of this potential, you know, leading to conflicts, it's unfounded. Mm-hmm. Yes, and Professor Wagner, I mean, undoubtedly we've heard how this um, science and technology agreement um, has played a big role in propelling China's scientific research and tech industry, but um, is it all about China and what China gets out of it? And has the United States also benefited from this agreement? Yes, thank you so much for having me and for bringing attention to this important issue. The question you're asking is the right question, because, uh, of course, we have seen China make tremendous strides in their scientific capacity over uh, the last 40 years, really uh, unprecedented in history. Uh, Has a country um, gone from very little uh, scientific capability to um, world-class, world-class science? So it really China's to be commended for that. But in addition, as this has occurred, the United States has benefited tremendously from this because uh, we have had really, really smart people come to the United States, uh, conduct research, uh, join into research teams, become uh, professors, become doctors. Uh, become engineers. So all of that has enriched uh, the United States too. If we think about science as just really important knowledge, then more knowledge benefits everyone, not just China and the United States. It benefits the world in general. So um, in my view, uh, China's rise in capability has benefited the United States and the world. Uh, so, Professor Cohen, as we know, China has been growing as a scientific powerhouse in recent decades. Um, as Professor Wagner just now said, um, this is evident from China's high rankings in metrics like research paper qu- quantity, citation rates, and patent applications. But what factors do you believe have contributed to this growth? And is this primarily a result of scientific cooperation with the U.S.? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I mean, how much is uh, uh, well? First of all, thank you for having me on, on on online and for participating with this great group of people that you gathered. Uh, you know, how much uh, uh, would China have been able to grow in the absence of international cooperation? I suspect uh, it would be a lot less. Uh, I suspect there would have been a lot less for the United States as well. Uh, uh, international collaboration, as Professor Wagner's research in particular. Uh, points out in terms of scientific publications results in better and higher quality, more widely cited uh, publications. I think the same is also true of patents and collaborative, you know, applied research, uh, where we have uh, a lot of uh, uh, joint patenting with China uh, and also uh, higher quality. Uh, uh, So there's both been a quantitative and qualitative impact. Now, not all of that, of course, is from 
the S&T agreement. I mean, I, I think Professor Wagner pointed out very broadly about how uh, the S&T agreement or S&T cooperation, rather, has stimulated a, a, a range of activities, including professors uh, uh, coming over to the, the U.S. And, and, and students becoming professors and, uh, uh, and people either coming back or remaining in the United States, uh, uh, and certainly Americans going to China to teach as well. Uh, some of that is, uh, uh, you know, coming from uh, uh, mechanisms other than the S and T agreement. You know, it's coming from uh, universities like Professor Wagner's and my own, uh, educating students uh, 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 from the private sector and, and other arrangements, including you know joint labs that have been established in both countries. Uh, but it's been a uh, it's been a remarkable stimulus, I think, particularly to China uh, since 1979. If you look back to where China was in science. In '79, uh, I, uh, I think it's been a, a, a dramatic improvement, and I think it's also contributed uh, not just to the United States but to the world in terms of increasing scientific knowledge in many, many important areas. Yes, and, and Professor Zhao,、um, let me go to you. How do you view the arguments? Put forth by U.S. lawmakers that China has exploited this its scientific collaborations with the U.S. for military gain, and Do you perceive the push for decoupling as primarily driven by national security concerns, or do you feel this more about the U.S. losing its dominance in science and technology? Well, first of all, U.S. politicians have have a very simplistic logic about how this STA agreement is related to national security and military advantage, because、uh, by their logic. That、uh, China is the only party benefiting from this agreement unilaterally, and、uh, most of the time China is just stealing American technology and therefore taking advantage of the United States by and then improving、uh, China's own technology,、uh, science and technology. And then, because of this new program called Civil Military Fusion, China can transfer that learned science and technology、uh, from the United States into Uh, more military advantage, and therefore that's threatening the U.S.、Uh, national security. However, none of those uh, uh, logic is true. Uh, and uh, just to name a, a few examples, for for instance, in the letter that's written by a U.S. politician Gallagher,、uh, U.S. House representative, and also the chairman of this、uh, Select Committee on China-U.S.、Uh, cooperation, uh, China-U.S.、Uh, competition,、uh, he is talking about how China and United States working together. On meteorological balloons, and how those balloon technology is being used by China to send a balloon over U.S. territory, violating uh, China, uh, U.S. Uh, sovereignty, and using that case itself is inappropriate because the U.S. cannot prove that balloon is is not a meteorological balloon; it's a, some some kind of surveillance balloon used by the military. And secondly, even if that's true, that balloon is not directly. The products of U.S.-China cooperation on meteorological and scientific development. So all this kind of、uh, U.S. politicians'、uh, logic is just used to justify themselves and to to back their own anti-China rhetoric.、Uh, again, coming back to your question, I think this is ultimately、uh, not about real U.S. national interest and national security. It's only about those U.S. politicians. To get tough on China, to show their credibility of anti-China hawk, so that they can gain domestic political capital, and to to facilitate their future political career, 
Uh, and these have nothing to do with real benefit that the U.S. is getting from scientific uh, science and technology agreements with China. So I think not only Chinese, but also many, many American scientists, I think there are over a thousand American scientists together wrote a letter to the Biden administration stating the importance of this agreement. And I think that's a common uh, uh, understanding in both uh, China and United States and in the world scientific community that this agreement should be extended without political interference. Hmm. Um, so, Professor Wagner, how do you look at this national security argument? And, I mean, the line between civilian and military applications of technology can sometimes be very hard to define, isn't it? Yes, you're right about that. It is hard to define. However, if we think about science, uh, our scientific knowledge, and its and its relationship to technology, uh, no nation owns science, uh, and no nation even owns technology, right? I think um, Professor Zhao was just making an excellent point about the balloon technology. I mean, balloons are in the circus, you know, I mean, every, everybody has balloons. So, uh, you know, the idea that um, we can hold on to these um, kinds of resources at a national level is misunderstanding the nature of science and technology. Science and technology is easily exchanged uh, between nations or between people. So the difference really is in the capacity to use it. So uh, science and technology is all over the place. What we have to develop is the capacity to use it effectively. Now, China has been using science and technology very effectively in many, many ways and pulled so many people out of poverty um, that um, it's a tremendous achievement. The United States, instead of looking at it as um, we're pouring uh, military capability into China, what we need to do is look internally and say, we need to build the capacity to not only develop science and technology knowledge, but use it effectively. And therefore, what we need to do is build our own capabilities uh, to use science and technology effectively. What we do with it after the fact uh, in military, uh, in a military sense is beyond the question of whether or not we have scientific cooperation. That should go on independent of any consideration about, uh, you know, uh, military strength. What we need to do is focus on our own capability to use science uh, and then um, and then spread it as widely as we can. Science and technology knowledge is tremendously helpful um, to development. So um, we ought to look to spread it, not to limit it. Yeah, I totally agree with you that science should be um, a globally shared resource. But why are um, technological dominance then um, seen as so important by some countries? And is it really that important? It is important. If we look through history, um, the leading science, uh, the, the nation leading in science and technology is oftentimes a military uh, leader as well, uh, and not always for the good. Um, so there is a history of that. It's not something that can be completely ignored. Uh, however, one of the things we need to think about um, as a world is that we're facing a number of serious challenges that require cooperation on a global scale. 
Now, this is a challenge for human beings in general. We have a hard time cooperating at that level, but uh, we're facing tremendous challenges in climate and in health that uh, require us to put down the arms and pick up the knowledge and apply it. Uh, if we can put away these old ideas of um, nation to nation and conflict and who's ahead and who's behind um, and instead pick up cooperation, uh, that may sound utopian, but it it is possible. Uh, and so what if we made that the goal instead of um, worrying about which one has more arms uh, than another? Mm -hmm. uh, so Professor Cohen, uh, how do you see the evolving definition of national security in the context of international cooperation and its potential impact on scientific cooperation and trade relations? Uh, great question. Uh, uh, and it's a great question because it's one that I think uh, the United States and I think other countries are struggling with, not only in terms of uh, science and technology cooperation, but in terms of issues like export controls uh, 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 and, and trade in general. And I think we've seen a growth, particularly in the U.S., and in some cases reciprocal actions uh, in use of, you know, uh, uh, trade sanctions of various kinds, blocking access to high-end chips uh, 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 to China, you know, it's just one of, one of many, many examples. But I don't think, I, I don't think I share the agnosticism, that I want to call it that, of Carolyn and others. I think uh, this is not so much a question, though, of whether one should engage in science cooperation. But, you know, if, uh, if a country came to the U.S. and say we would like to develop a new form of anthrax to use as a weapon, well, that may be a scientific matter of scientific cooperation, but the United States should decline it. Uh, uh, so it's really a matter of management. Even if you take the example of uh, mill fusion, which uh, gets repeated a great deal uh, 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 by the uh, Select Committee and others, uh, uh, if you know that there's a collapsed time frame between when a civil technology can have a military application, then you say, well, we don't really need to pursue that. On the other hand, that has almost nothing to do with certain forms of scientific collaboration. If we're changing weather data or pandemic information or uh, fossil information about fossils, I mean, I think it's pretty unlikely that that information uh, has a particular uh, military application. So. To me, uh, you know, uh, uh, yes, anything can be weaponized. You know, uh, uh, that's not really the right question. Uh, 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 and I think it's not really that germane uh, uh, to the STA uh, agreement, as long as you have smart people on both sides saying, okay, maybe this has some sensitivities. We don't have to cooperate on you know, a, a, a weaponized form of anthrax, again, to take a horrific example. Uh, uh, we will cooperate on these other things that perhaps are important to our economies or perhaps important to the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Mark Cohen, Asia IP Project Director at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, Tianxia Professor of Medicine at University of California, Los Angeles, Caroline Wagner Professor at The Ohio State University, and Zhao Hai Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Let's take a very short break, and coming back, we'll continue our discussion.
You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang, joined by Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, Caroline Wagner, Professor at the Ohio State University, Tian Xia, Professor of Medicine at University of California, Los Angeles, and Mark Cohen, Asia IP Project Director at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology. Uh, so, Professor Xia, um. As we know, the Biden administration has taken a series of actions to limit Chinese access to advanced technology in、uh, what National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has called a "small yard high fence" strategy. How do you perceive this strategy, and, and do you feel、um, Washington is is trying to find a middle ground, or do you think this is a gradual move towards decoupling?、Uh, I think that's. The、uh, move for decoupling、um, by the Biden administration,、um, uh, I think it's not、uh, healthy, you know,、uh, in preventing the exchange of knowledge and the progress of science. So、um, this has a sent the wrong message, in my opinion, that、uh, you know to the. Uh, Chinese community, science community in the U.S.,、uh, we already, you know,、uh, they already have a chilling effect,、uh, you know, by the FBI and NIH investigations、uh, in previous years that、uh, has already, you know,、uh, basically, you know, cutting down the collaborations between the U.S. And、uh, Chinese scientists. So, this new,、uh, you know,、uh, strategy they took is basically,、uh, I think,、uh, preventing the collaborations the、uh, from happening.、Uh, so, as we have seen that the. Uh, from my personal experience, the collaborations has has already, you know,、uh, become few and、uh, far between. So,、uh, this is、uh, not a a good trend、uh, for the two countries.、Uh, I think they、uh, need to, you know,、uh, as a symbolic, you know.、Uh, Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and Professor Sia.、Oh. Yes, you know, some would say、uh, the question lies in how small the yard is and how high、um, the fence will be. I mean, what's your thought on this? For instance, you are a professor of nano medicine, right? So, is this also in that small yard? Because,、um, as far as I know, this has nothing to do with with military or national security, right? Yeah, no, no relationship to the you know, national security or. Defense. It's、uh, purely the、uh, practical reasons that the production of the nanomaterials and the development of nanomedicine. As an example, is the COVID vaccine、uh, using the nanoparticles to deliver the mRNA into the human body to stimulate the immune system. So.、Uh, This is a, a small field.、Uh, it's purely, you know,、uh, the curiosity 
into uh, these tiny particles and try to use them for the benefits of uh, human health and understanding their, you know, uh, toxicity potentials. So this is a, a, a pursuit of uh, the knowledge to better understanding these materials and use them to treat human diseases. So it's highly advanced technology, but uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it has nothing to do with this kind of, uh, uh, you know, military use. Or, yeah, but, but is co collaboration in this field also being affected by this uh, this decoupling or this small yard high fence strategy? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, as I mentioned from the previous years, the FBI programs uh, and the NIH investigations into the, you know, mainly the Chinese scientists. So mm -hmm. those has a chilling effect on the um, uh, collaborations uh, between the both countries. And uh, I can see, you know, uh, some of my colleagues, uh, professors, you know, uh, famous professors have left the university and they returned back to China because of uh, those programs. So now, if there is a, you know, discontinue of this STA, uh, I think it sends a wrong message and uh, potentially, you know, uh, increase the hostility between the, you know, uh, mm -hmm. between the two countries. Okay. And uh, it will be bad for the collaborations in science and technology. Mm -hmm. Well, Dr. Zhao, as we know, scientific collaboration between uh, the U.S. and China came under intense scrutiny during the Trump administration when uh, the U.S. Justice Department launched the China Initiative to investigate possible Chinese uh, IP theft and esp espionage. Uh, but how would you compare the Biden administration's approach with that of his predecessor in handling these issues related to scientific cooperation? Well, I think the Trump administration has adopted open hostili hostility towards scientific community uh, in the United States, and it targeted Chinese uh, Americans or Chinese scientists uh, that are working in the United States or work with uh, U.S. Uh, scientific community, and that is a very bad start for the uh, later on what happened between the two countries, that it poisoned the well. Uh, since then, I think uh, scientists are very cautious about uh, where and how to cooperate with the Chinese side, and uh, they're reluctant to cooperate on any uh, sort of sensitive field. Uh, so I think this is a very bad case. Uh, and for the Biden administration, of course, they're not uh, sort of uh, openly uh, hostile towards China. And actually, during the early days of the Biden administration, they canceled the China initiative and try to correct some of the bad cases that uh, uh, the FBI has been prosecuting. However, the Biden administration is adopting a cold, non-cooperative attitude because, there, uh, for instance, uh, during the uh, Biden years, there's no further uh, uh, cooperation on scientific programs between the two countries. And 
and now we see that uh, they're even reluctant to renew uh, the science and technology agreements. Even during the Trump years, they decided ultimately to renew this uh, basic agreement because whatever we discussed previously about you know, civil uh, military uh, dual use of the science and technology, it's irrelevant with this very basic science and technology agreement. Uh, because from the very beginning, like I said, this is an umbrella uh, agreement that does not involve specific sector of science and technology. Whatever that uh, is enabled by this very fundamental agreement has nothing to do with military application. So from I think that right now, when the Biden administration is caving to some of the Republican hawks on China, uh, I think it's a very bad news because that means the Biden administration is willing to play politics on this issue rather than have political courage to carry on, you know, continue this very basic science and technology agreement. And I agree totally with the, the previous opinion that this uh, science and technology should be uh, uh, those cooperations should be managed instead of just, you know, stop the cooperation between the two sides and abandon this agreement. So ultimately, I think it, it's up to the Biden administration to really figure out exactly how to uh, continue this uh, a very welcomed and very constructive agreement between the two sides uh, and on the one side and then on the other side to fend off any political attack from the uh, hawkish Republicans and to you know have the political courage to do the right thing. Okay, so Professor Cohen, how do you look at this um, small yard high fence strategy and how would you compare that with uh, the approaches of the Trump administration? Well, the, the, the schoolyard high fence strategy uh, is kind of a common uh, refrain, if you will, on export controls and related uh, uh, trade sanctions. Uh, the U.S. Uh, often says, you know, we're, we're just trying to isolate really critical things and we're not trying to uh, uh, address the full range of things. You know, for example, uh, uh, in terms of science, uh, um, you know, when a professor lectures in a university classroom, that is not a regulated export control, uh, 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 even if they're a foreign national. Uh, uh, university instruction is exempted uh, 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 from that, and, and, and that's been longstanding. And I think that's something that the universities in the United States jealously try to protect. Uh, uh, so it, 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 it's, it's been expanding, and it's become increasingly more uh, problematic. Uh, uh, although I, I think it's mostly problematic in the context outside of the SBA. Uh, uh, you know, and, I, and I go back and I echo, well, I think the, the pre previous speaker, I think it was echoing me, that you know, most of these things in the STA are manageable. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say all of them are manageable. Uh, 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 and and I, I found, I participated in uh, uh, the innovation dialogue uh, uh, in the uh, 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 Obama administration, I think the beginning of the Trump period as well. But uh, I found that, uh, you know, having scientists talk about how to cooperate, uh, about challenges, legal or otherwise, between the two countries was immensely benefit beneficial to uh, the science collaboration, to the intellectual property environment, and to building up uh, trust and experience and managing expectations. Uh, uh, so, uh, you know, I, I view the STA agreement as an important vehicle for discussing some of these sensitive issues, not avoiding them. Uh, 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 and um, 
Uh, and there are a whole range of new issues that have appeared in the past uh, uh, 10 years, certainly since 1979. That's when the original STA goes back. There were forms of intellectual property that didn't even exist in 1979. Uh, and in recent years, we've had other issues like you know, biometric data, data flows, national security and data. Uh, we've had uh, issues around uh, ethics uh, and, and gene editing and, and genetically modified organisms. You know, a whole range of issues. These are great topics for scientists to discuss uh, and, and work out uh, protocols for collaborating with each other and improving the environment, not only for the U.S. and China, but for the rest of the world. Uh, so uh, I, I don't, you know, we can come up with a whole range of issues, and I doubt there isn't one in scientific co collaboration that can't be discussed where uh, folks can work out reasonable ways of addressing them. Uh, 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 and, and, you know, the, the issue of, um, of export controls, that's certainly a problem that affects the private sector, uh, uh, but it, it need not derail the SDA. In fact, it's something that also we can discuss to make mm -hmm. sure that no one is treading on sensitivities of the other country. Yes, yes, that's true. And, and Professor Cohen, since you mentioned the uh, intellectual property, how do you look at China's efforts in um, intellectual property protection in recent years? And has progress been made? And, and uh, are there still issues or concerns that still needs to be addressed? Yeah, so, you know, intellectual China has made tremendous progress. Uh, in intellectual property protection, uh, certainly since 1979. Uh, and uh, by the way, uh, since we're talking about the STA and bilateral agreements, the, the original uh, uh, Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation Treaty between the U.S. and China talked about China protecting, uh, I believe it was uh, patents and, uh, uh, and copyrights, and, and, and China didn't even have those protections at the time. We've used bilateral cooperation, I think both sides, to advance uh, uh, improvements in, in, in intellectual property and in scientific collaboration. Uh, you know, since the topic of scientific collaboration during the prior uh, discussions around the STA, the U.S. had certain concerns about China's tech transfer environment, and they were um, uh, it was an old law that was still on the books. Uh, and we had excellent discussions with Minister Wang Dan uh, at the time uh, and his team. Uh, uh, about uh, uh, whether this uh, law needed to be reformed or not. He was, he was very supportive, and he understood U.S. concerns. So there are always going to be bumps in the road, uh, and, and particularly as the Chinese system has become more sophisticated. The U.S. system has certain problems as well in terms of patent-eligible subject matter. If you speak to patent lawyers about protection of software patents, genetically modified organisms, some of which are very critical uh, uh, some of these are very critical for newly emerging technologies like AI uh, and biotech. Uh, uh, and, um, and they do affect uh, and they can affect scientific co collaboration on entrepreneurship. Those mm -hmm. are big topics to discuss. So I, 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 don't, um, I don't view uh, uh, any of these things as, as major obstacles to the STA. Uh, I think you know, if you look at the grand scheme of things, in a way it's a sign of China's technological emergence that in recent years, uh, licensing uh, uh, has become a hotter topic or a hot topic between the U.S. and China. How mm -hmm. to transfer technology, how to assign it or sell it, uh, how, to, how to assess the value. And frankly, I think those are also good topics uh, within the SDA framework, uh, 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 as well as government-to-government -government cooperation. Uh, uh, and uh, I think that's just another sign of China's emerging importance in 
science and technology. Mm-hmm. Well, Professor Wagner, you earlier emphasized the importance of um, open science, uh, but you know, in a digital age where ideas flow freely across borders, um, is it a bit hard to enforce intellectual property protections without stifling the spirit of open scientific inquiry? Thanks for that question. Uh, the idea of patenting originally, if we go back historically, uh, was to encourage people to release their knowledge so that others could see it. Uh, that is what the idea of a patent is. That not that they're um, quote unquote uh, uh, walling it off from others, but to keep people from uh, holding on to secrets and allowing people to see what's uh, being advanced and then therefore build around it or um, advance in other ways too. So the idea, <clears throat> the idea of a patent is to encourage innovation. It doesn't always uh, work like that because of the ways in which uh, lawyers manipulate things uh, with patents. But uh, the idea of patents is indeed to encourage and create innovative spaces uh, rather than to um, close things off. So the um, the way in which China has developed their patent system, I'm not an expert on that at all, Marcus, but, um, you know, I think is to... Um, uh, provide the encouragement and provide the protection so that if somebody wants to continue advancing their idea towards the market, they have some um, they have some protection uh, for a time in order to do that. So I think this is essential to any innovative system and China certainly developing uh, their innovation system and doing it effectively. So I would say that um, patents are a natural, um, partner to scientific research and technological development uh, in any system and the ability to protect some uh, entrepreneurs while they're developing knowledge is very, very important. So I don't see it as a threat at all. In fact, it's part of any kind of a healthy ecosystem um, uh, for innovation that a nation not only develops patenting, but also ways to protect patents. Uh, so you can register a patent, but if you have no way to protect it um, legally, then that's obviously um, not a good thing. <laughs> but um, I think this is absolutely critical to China uh, as well as to any uh, form of innovation. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and, and Dr. Zhao, um, as we know, China has been proactively advancing in emerging technologies and fostering innovation. Uh, but in light of the potential scientific and technological decoupling, how do you foresee the impact on China's technology sector and the broader innovation ecosystem that China is trying to cultivate? Well, I think certainly if we continue on this path uh, with, with uh, you know, the U.S. particularly trying to decouple uh, China not only from trade per- investment perspective, but also scientific and technology cooperation, then uh, everybody will suffer. It's not going to be a zero-sum game. It's going to be a lose-lose game. Uh, that means not only China's science and technology development will be slowed, uh, the U.S. will suffer as well, because as we all know, that uh, both countries benefited from S&T uh, agreements. Uh, and these agreements actually enable data flow between the two countries and also the use of labs and uh, the uh, help of uh, talents uh, with both countries working together. 
And without this collaboration, without the data flow, each country will have a very hard time uh, acquiring additional data, uh, and they will uh, expand more on science and technology development. And sometimes they couldn't get the data they need, and then that will prevent further uh, development. And particularly, I want to refer to uh, climate change because that's a common challenge for both China, the United States, and the world. Uh, and in order to have a better understanding of the impact of climate change, uh, you need to have a massive accumulation of data across the globe. And without China and the U.S. exchanging data between the two, uh, it's hard for the scientists to get a complete picture, and therefore hard to hard for them to come up with uh, remedies. You know, uh, come up with uh, uh, technological solutions to, to some of the problems. So again, I think uh, that will, if we stop uh, by decoupling with each other from scientific and technology, then uh, both countries will have a lower potential of economic development. But that means uh, not only they will suffer uh, from lower growth, economic growth, but there will be more unemployment, there will be more economic problems for both countries. And uh, China is not, I think, uh, certainly, China will suffer, but uh, nobody will be exempt from uh, 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 from this kind of uh, mm. flaw. Yeah. Yes. And, and Professor Xia, would you agree that um, this decoupling process could slow American progress in in some critical areas as well? And um, in a world increasingly shaped by technological advancement, can we really afford to let political tensions overshadow scientific collaboration, especially between the U.S. and China? Yeah, yeah, I agree. So the uh, one prominent ex example will be, you know, uh, currently there are two space stations. One is the International Space Station, and the other is uh, just, uh, you know, uh, fully got into operation last year, the Tiangong Space Station. So the International Space Station will, you know, stop to work maybe after 2030, and the Tiangong Space Station will be in operation for another, you know, 10 or 20 years. So this, at this collaboration, if there's no collaboration, then, you know, uh, the U.S. will not have access to these space stations. So that's just uh, shows you that the collaboration or cooperation between the both countries will be uh, critical in development of knowledge, the science and technology. So um, we cannot just uh, stop eating for fear of choking. Uh, this is, uh, as uh, Dr. Zhao mentioned, it's an umbrella uh, uh, sort of a program. It doesn't have la uh, funding liabilities. It's cheap uh, and, but uh, it's laid the foundation for the collaboration between the both countries. Science thrive on collaboration and cooperation. And uh, to put uh, obstacles on these uh, agreements will be, you know, uh, ha harmful to the development of science and technology. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so Professor Cohen, how, how do you think China should respond um, to the challenges posed by the potential decoupling of scientific ties? Are there proactive measures that can be taken uh, to perhaps mitigate the impacts or ensure the continued international collaboration? Well, um, there's a few, few aspects to that question. First of all, uh, I think that if the SDA were not renewed, uh, let's say six months from now, uh, it doesn't mean that science and, te- science and technological collaboration with the United States has to stop. And of course, even if it stopped with the U.S., it doesn't mean that China has to stop collaborating with other countries. Uh, 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 so, you know, the, the question is really related to the impact of the STA not being renewed upon the bilateral relationship. I think China has already shown more or less what its strategies are, and I I think there's a cost associated with it to China and also a cost to the United States. I mean, if the U.S. uh, um, uh, decides that it has to prohibit uh, leaving chips from NVIDIA uh, uh, that are used in AI-related applications, uh, ultimately, that does two things. First of all, it decreases the amount of revenue to NVIDIA. Uh, China is a major customer, often a leading customer in many fields, and decreasing the revenue means that there's going to be less money for R&D. So ultimately, it can adversely, indeed seriously adversely impact uh, the ability of a uh, U.S. supplier to be competitive. And the second thing, of course, is that it stimulates China to find alternative sources and or to develop its own product. I mean, I believe a Huawei launched its 5.5G phone at the same time that Gina Raimondo was was in uh, 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 in Shanghai. That's uh, probably an example of how China is trying to say, "Well, gee, we can we can develop our own products as well." Uh, uh, so, that, I think those are those are kind of inevitable consequences, and, and it's it's a parallel kind of situation to what happens if we don't have the S and cooperation in place. It's not only that the uh, 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 there may be lower quality or, or, or less active collaboration. There may be duplicative uh, efforts to address, uh, you know, serious challenges that each country of the world are facing, which, of course, is inherently inefficient. Uh, we, we're much better off sharing results and developing things together. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, there, there's multiple ways that this costly. I think there's already a number of economic studies that have shown, for example, that the Trump sanctions uh, uh, on China and on other countries that had a negative impact on the U.S. economy and you know, the global economy. Uh, uh, and, you know, it's classic uh, 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 economic theory on comparative advantage. And I think it also applies in the science and technology area. Yeah, thank you very much for your insights. And unfortunately, we are running out of time. So thank you, Mark Cohen, Asia IP Project Director at the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, Tian Xia, Professor of Medicine at University of California, Los Angeles, Caroline Wagner, Professor at The Ohio State University, and Zhao Hai, Director of International Political Studies at the National Institute for Global Strategy at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Thank you again for being with us. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.